story of the lost son. And I noticed everyone looked at me a little awkwardly because I recognize now that you guys probably refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. Amen? And so if you actually look in your dictionary and you look up the word prodigal, you'll find in the American Heritage Dictionary that prodigal means recklessly wasteful or extravagant. And so the story of the prodigal son is the story of a son who was recklessly wasteful. Now, having convinced his father to give him his inheritance early, he squandered it all on fast living before coming home. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look through verses 11 through 31 as we uncover this and unpack it a little bit more. And if you don't have a Bible, there are ushers and they are ready to give you one if you just lift your hand and let them know that you are in need of one on this morning. And so as we're getting to our Bibles and as we're turning to Luke chapter 15, you'll see that I want to, this morning, in keeping with our theme, create it for significance. And this is our week three of this series. I think that we want to see the story of the prodigal son and a slightly different aspect. I think that we will agree, once we're done with this time, that the story may not really be about the son, but instead about the father. Amen? And so to look at that, let's start with Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Notice how it begins. There was a man who had two sons. Who's the subject of the sentence? The man. And his objects are the two sons. This is really the story of a prodigal father. It's about a father who is extravagant and recklessly wasteful with his love for his children. This morning we were gonna sing Reckless Love, but as you guys know, it was the debut and the first time for our worship team. Can we please give them a nice round of applause? At the last minute we decided two songs is enough to learn in one week. And so we're working on Reckless Love for you on next week. But there's this reckless love, if you will. And to fully appreciate it, you really ought to see it in its entirety. So throughout this message, I'm going to do as I always do, and those who are familiar with my teaching, you'll see we're going to paint a picture as we work our ways through the scripture. We're going to go on a journey, and we'll end at verse 31, time permitting. And I want you to see, as we study this carefully, that it's more about God than maybe we've ever imagined before. In my mind, this story is one of the most important stories in the Bible because it's the story of what the Heavenly Father is like. 
Now, the story is going to answer a question for us. And at the end of 30 minutes, I believe we're going to know the answer to this question. How does God feel about you? How does God feel about you? Now, this, this is a story that Jesus is telling, and we learned on last week that it's the third story in a series of parables that Jesus shared when he was conversing with the Pharisees. And so they had seen, as you remember, that he was sort of hanging with the riffraff of Israel. And so as a result of it, he knew that they were judging him. And so we talked about on last week how he went through the trouble of not just telling one parable, which was common for him to do, and after he would tell a parable, he would stop and explain what the meaning of that story was, but we found out last week that Jesus did something a little bit out of pattern on this occasion because he was so very frustrated with their lack of understanding about what matters to God. Somebody say, what matters to God? He wanted them to get it. And so he gave them one parable. And we talked about the parable um, he did with the lost coin. And then after that, we talked a little bit about um, the, the parable with the, um, what was the other one we talked about last week? Anybody? I want to see who remembers. All right. Thank you, Brother Steve. We talked about the parable of the lost sheep. And I made your promise last week. I said, come back next week. And we're going to talk about what? The lost son. The lost son. And so we saw that as we first talked about the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and lost one. And then we continued with the woman who had ten coins and lost one. And now we're talking about a father who had two sons and lost one. Do you remember me making the observation on last week that the proportions kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller with each example? We started off with 100 and lost one sheep. We started off with 10 coins and lost one coin. Now we're talking about two sons and losing one son. I think that has significance for us this morning because he's reframing it and reframing it and reframing it because when we talked about it, we said, you know, if I had 100 sheep, I don't know if I would really miss just one. But we saw to God, even that one sheep was important. And no matter how the proportions are, from 100 to 2, we saw last week that we matter to God. So I told you last week that this was something we needed to unpack and take our time with. And so this week, we're going to unpack this in five scenes. Somebody say five scenes. Scene one is set on the family homestead. It's about the father dividing his property between his two sons. Scene two covers what happens to the younger son who runs away to a faraway land to escape the scorn of the village. Scene three describes the interaction between the father and the younger son when the younger son returns. And then scene four picks up with the older son in the field. And scene five is about how the older son returns. Or does he? So to understand that, you have to understand a whole bunch 
of Jewish culture from first century. And of course, we're going to unpack that and we're going to talk about all of that. But this is such an amazing story and the verses that we're going to read are really going to be cut up into those scenes because I want you to see it in full digital stereo. I don't want us to just read them as words on the page, but I want it to come alive and for us to understand what God is saying to us on this morning. In scene one, the younger son asked the father to divide his property between his sons, and he does. So you've got to understand, before we go any further, how extraordinary this request was. This is not a normal thing to ask in this, in this time, in this setting. Um, you might think that, oh, okay, that's really cool. The dad gave him his stuff in advance um, without you know, enforcing any boundaries. But here's what's really going on. There's an, um, a writer named Ken Bailey, and he wrote this. I want to read this quote to you. For over 15 years, I have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implication of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has almost always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. Has, everyone, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? The answer, never. Could anyone make such a request? The answer, impossible. If anyone did, what would happen? He would be beaten and scorn, of course. Why? This request means, in essence, he wants his father to die. One Middle Eastern writer said, the shepherd in search for the sheep and the woman in search for the coin don't really do anything out of the ordinary beyond what someone in their place would do. But to understand this parable, you must understand that the actions that the father takes in this third story are so very unique. They're marvelous and divine actions which have not been done by any father in the, pan, in the past. So now looking at the scripture again in context, culturally, to see the significance Divide your inheritance so that I can have my share of the estate is the son's request. And to everyone's amazement, he does. The next words of the story in Luke chapter 15, I'm at verse 13 now, go like this. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. Now, most Westerners think he just took off immediately, and this was so fascinating as I was researching and studying this, but that's just not how this would have gone. You're thinking in your mind he got his, his inheritance and he dashed off and he partied like a wild animal, but let me tell you what really would have had to happen. He would have had to, in essence, in our terminology, liquidate 
his inheritance. He would have had to find a buyer for his portion of the inheritance, his portion of the family farm, his portion of the family jewels, his portion of the family livestock. Are you beginning to get a picture? So it's not like in our days where you get a wire transfer from one bank account to another and you're gone. He would have literally had to liquidate his inheritance, the things that belong to him and his share. And let me tell you another thing. That would not have been easy to do. That would have been a challenging assignment because people would be asking you, what are you doing selling your father's livestock? Did he die? Your father's alive? You took your inheritance early? It would be shock. It would be disbelief. And there would be a lot of people that said, I don't want any part of that. You can keep that livestock. You can keep that farm. You can keep your portion. And so he's already starting off on a bad foot. Now, of course, he must have got really desperate, I'm imagining, and had to sell it at a good price because eventually somebody took it off his hands for him so he could get out of there. I'm imagining, you know, he has uh, something that's the equivalent of maybe $5,000 in, in livestock. He's like, look, you give me 500 bucks here. He would have had to give it away practically in order to get rid of it in this fashion, which would explain why he ran out of money so fast. The next words of the story go like this. Look at Luke 15, 13. Not long after that, the younger son got all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. And so that's his motivation for leaving at this point. Even though he didn't leave right away, as you can see, it says not long after that, after he liquidated his inheritance, after he did this, after he was able to get these things sold. And so as Jesus is telling this story, his listeners, mind you, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the religious elite. And they're imagining this brash young man going from door to door, trying to convince people to, who knew his father to buy a piece of something, a piece of property or anything. And they're thinking, this is unthinkable. We talked about that a little bit on last week, how every time Jesus told a story in that parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep, he was talking about something that to them was unthinkable. First of all, I wouldn't be a shepherd. That's not a noble profession. And I certainly wouldn't be a woman. And if I did, I'm not going to be a father who would give my inheritance to my son early, and as we'll see in a moment, did many more things that they would not have agreed with. So as the storm mounts and the son gets out of, has that pressure to get out of town, he sold the last of his goods. By now, the villagers are openly antagonistic about him. By now, the word has spread throughout the village, and they're all talking about it. And they all know that he has left his father with such disgrace. They are unimpressed as well with the frivolous living of this young man. 
And now, here he is, as it's described in the text, he's wasted this money. And the citizens of this faraway country know that as well. Now, I was also humored to find out that they wouldn't have politely asked, they wouldn't have asked him to just get out of their town. They would have just made it so uncomfortable that he would have just left. And so as we can see here and as we look, things start to turn for the worse for him. He asks for a job, and, and what you would do is you would just offer him a job that it wouldn't take, and then that way he would have no choice but to leave and find somewhere else to go to look for work. And so here, he's offered the job of a pig herder. Now, last week when we talked about being a shepherd, if you thought being a shepherd was a lowly profession, <laughs> imagine handling pigs. First of all, we're talking Jewish culture. They're unclean animals. And you're going to take a job to handle unclean animals? And then guess what else I found out about the culture? This was one of the rare jobs that was seven days a week. You don't get the Sabbath off. So you're handling unclean animals and you're not observing the Sabbath. So we're giving you this job offer and we're sure you're going to say, no, I think I'm going to find another place to go. And that's what he does. Doesn't desperation make you do some desperate things? Ever been in a desperate situation where you're looking at options that you never thought you would look at? Where you're considering doing things that you thought, I would never do this. And here he is in that situation, in this hole of self-pity. He takes this job, but it's a terrible job. Anybody know anything about that? Doesn't pay well enough. And he begins to starve with hunger. In this hole of self-pity, he begins to think honestly about himself. Have you ever noticed that when you're in your deepest, darkest, lowest point, it's a time of great self-examination? It's a time of great reflection? You kind of look up and you say, how did I get here? What is going on? And the son must be in this type of position because he begins to think and he realizes that he can't go back home and ask to live in the family house again as a son because he already cut the deal that he would just take his inheritance now and be gone. So that's not an option for him at this point. And so he comes up with this, what I think was an actually very resourceful plan. He says, I might not be able to go back as a son, but surely I could go back as a servant. I mean, my father, he has many servants. 
Maybe I can go back and work for him. And so he thought that that would be a good offer. So he thinks creatively and he comes up with this plan. I'll go home, I'll admit I was a fool, and instead of asking to be reinstated as a son, I'll ask to be hired as a servant. Now the plan has merit except for one thing. Even if the father accepts him on these terms, did we forget about the scorn that he's still going to have to face when he returns to this village? Everybody knows what he did. Have you ever been in a scenario where you already know what you need to do, but the humiliation or the anticipation of the embarrassment? I can't. I mean, I know I left that church, and I know that's not what I was supposed to do, and I know God wants me here, but... I mean, I couldn't go back. Everyone would make fun of me. They would say, I thought you left. You left that relationship and you, you know that this was not the relationship you were supposed to walk away from. And you know you need to humble yourself and you need to go back and you need to apologize and you need to say, you were the best friend I ever had. You were there for me. You always had my back. But sometimes like, oh, I'm not calling her first. But here we have a man that is able to step away from pride and say, you know what, this has gone too far. This has gone too far. It's too, it's too way out of hand. And I am determined that I cannot live in this state any longer. See, sometimes we have to hit rock bottom just so that we can recognize that that's not the place that God has for us. We get upset about rock bottom, but rock bottom can be a good place if we make the necessary assessments and return to where we know there's restoration. Any of you here that might be from a foreign country might also be able to identify. If you come here from another land, you don't want to return back as a failure. The whole point of you coming was you're going to make a better life for yourself. He was going to leave. He was going to make a better life for himself. And things did not go as according to plan. But he thinks creatively and he decides to return. So when he returns, here's the next scene. Scene three I told you about where the younger son returns. This is where the father comes into the story in full force. The father, because of his experience, knows two things. First, he knows that the son, given the maturity level and the character with which he left home, is bound to fail. Do you know certain things about your kids? You know, it's just kind of like when they ask you and they have this idea, and you're like, But they're set on doing it. So when they come back, you kind of already, they don't even have to articulate what happened because you kind of already knew that didn't go well, did it? I could have saved you the journey, but of course, had to figure it out yourself, didn't you? So he knew that if the son ever did come home, it would probably not be because 
he was coming to show how well he succeeded. The second thing the father knows is that the village will not treat him well. Have you guys ever been? It's, I love when we look at the stories and we look at the Bible and then we think about in our context what that would be like. Have you guys ever been in a scenario where someone in your family and, and they were on drugs and they, they harmed their family and they came and they, they took things and sold things so that they could support their habit and everyone in the community knows what's going on and they want to come back home and the parent is like, I love you, it doesn't matter to me, but everyone on the street is just like, really? You would let them in again? Do you remember what happened last time? So the father is in a situation like that. He knows if his son comes back, not only is he not successful in what he left to try to do, but on top of that, he knows that the village is not going to treat him well. And what he does in scene three to counteract all of that is nothing short of amazing. In scene three, I told you we would do this like a story. The first thing the father does is run. Now, if you remember from last week, this is significant because, once again, they weren't wearing pants. They were wearing robes. And in order to run in a robe, something would have to happen. You would have to lift your rope. Something in respectable, respectable man would never do. You wouldn't show your ankles. You wouldn't expose your body. That was the whole point of being fully clothed. So to run to his son was such an act of love and humility and sacrifice. He would have been seen on the outskirts of his village. People would have seen him running. And although to you it may not seem all that significant, okay, he ran to him, big deal. In his culture and in his time, it would have been a significant thing to do. It's an outrageous thing to run in front of the entire village. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, said, great men never run in public. So there you go, it's official. It was definitely something tremendous. But in Luke 15, verse 20, he does, and Jesus explains why. He says, but while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He was filled with compassion for him. That's how the father feels about his children. He has compassion for us. He deliberately runs through the village and he knows he's creating a spectacle. He knows that doing so will gather and attract a crowd. But here's what I want you to see. He could not let him make that long walk alone. He didn't want him to spend the rest of that walk going, wow, this is so embarrassing. He met him where he was. What's Jesus 
telling these Pharisees? And what might he be telling us? He meets people where they are. What? You mean they don't have to come to church all cleaned up? What? You mean they don't need to know all 66 books of the Bible? He meets us right where we are. Well, Pastor, you don't understand. I still have this thing with X. He meets you where you are. The second thing the father does, he kisses his son. Luke 15, 20 says, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Can you picture it? They're embracing eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder. In his mind, the son had pictured himself coming home and embarrassing himself but first he'd kiss him and he would kiss his father's hand and then he would kiss his father's feet. That's kind of like how the, the, the phrase became popular that when we are trying to seek forgiveness or we're trying to be restored. And even when you think about my husband's a big fan of like the Godfather series, you know, it's always you kiss the hand or you kiss the feet. And so in his mind, I have to come and I have to make up for all that I've done wrong and I'm gonna kiss his hands and I'm gonna kiss his feet and instead, the father runs and kisses him. He puts his arms around him. You don't have to get on your knees. You don't have to kiss my feet. I embrace you. I love you. I will kiss you. All he can do at this point as the son is accept the love. It's really funny because that's one of the things I notice when people come into the ministry and they, they feel all this love. And I, I never realized that for some people that's like awkward. Why are all these people hugging me? <laughs> I don't know them. But the son is just in awe because he has an expectation of such rejection and yet he is welcomed and he is Loved. Now, I do want to share with you the Greek word that was used to describe what the father does. It's kataphilu, and it means to kiss again and again. So picture yourself uh, in a scene. I thought about my, my little son, because my big kids won't let me kiss them like this anymore. But my, my little baby, he will. And you know how you just give them like the multiple kisses, one kiss like that? That's what that word meant. So he didn't just grab him, embrace him, and kiss him. He smothered him with love. So let's back up for a minute. At Luke 15, verse 19, we see what the son had planned to do when he first saw his father. And scene two, he planned out his whole speech. Have you ever done that? Like, you got your whole speech planned out. This is what you're going to say. Well, he did that. He says, I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. 
See his plan? He had it all figured out. He was going to admit his guilt, ask to become a servant in his father's household. Now, look at the actual speech that comes out. Look with me, if you would, at verse 21. It says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. What's missing here? Did he leave the part out? He left out the part where he asked to be the servant. Why do you think that might be missing? Maybe he's overwhelmed by that love. His plan to earn his way back into his father's favor, he recognizes at this moment. I don't need to ask him to be his servant. My father loves me and he still will receive me. Luke 15, 22. The third thing the father does is call for a robe to be put on his son. Now, it was already enough that he ran to meet him. It's already enough that he embraces him and kisses him. Now, you remember when we looked at the other story of the lost sheep and the lost coin, we saw that there was a pattern, and we see this pattern continue now here. That pattern was when they found what they lost, what did they do? They celebrated. The father celebrates the son's return here in a very reckless and extravagant way. It says here, quick, verse 22, bring the best robe and put it on him. Hmm. He told the servants. Now, mind you, he just wanted to be a servant at this point. But he told the servants, go get the best. And he doesn't stop there. The fourth thing he does is he calls for a ring. Verse 22, it also says, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. I don't want to see my son like this. I hope you're getting some parallels here. I hope you're beginning to see that even when we're at our lowest point, even when we're at our breaking point where we feel like if we return to our father, he's not going to accept us. And truly, if he does, he's not going to restore me. He's not going to put me to the position that I was in before, before I fell, before I wandered, before I got lost. And here you see the illustration that Jesus is giving us. He says not only does he receive him, not only does he welcome him, but he's throwing the most extravagant and lavish of parties, and he's bringing him a ring. And then he goes on and says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Do you know how significant that was? That's the equivalent of opening the oldest bottle of champagne. That's the equivalent of, for those of us who have the good china, that we tell our kids, no, 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 So I'll close with this. 
What do you see the Father doing? When he says, bring me the fatted calf, it had enough meat on it to feed the entire village. So while the enemy's plan was to embarrass him, that when he came back to the village that everyone would be talking about him and that this would be a horrific experience for him, do you see how God turned it around? And not only is it not going to be horrific, but they're going to be a part of the celebration. The Bible says he'll make your enemies your footstool. He says he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And so here where this was meant to be a horrific experience, it is celebratory and the whole village is invited to celebrate his return. I wish I had time to unpack more, but I think that as the Holy Spirit is speaking to me, this is what God wanted you to receive. We could go on 31 just to say we went on to 31, but I want to stop here because I want us to be able to absorb what it is that God has already said. And what is he saying to me? What does this mean to me? Anna, if you don't mind, I would like for you to turn the next slide for me. What it means for me is if I look at this as being symbolic and I see that this prodigal son, and really as we said, this prodigal father was reckless in his love, it reminds me that he's also reckless in his love for me. And so although, and you can turn it down real low, just go to the music part, I'm sorry. I thought I just took that all out. Uh, the video, Reckless Love. And although, and turn it down real low, just soft background. And although we may feel that we've disappointed him in some way, because we all do, we're reminded over and over again that we all sin and we all come short of the glory of God. We're reminded on this morning that, and just a little, that no matter in what area or in what way, we feel, God, I know I'm disappointing you. God, I know there have been some assignments that you've given me and I haven't handled them right the way that you desire for me to do it. I know there's been times where I felt like I walked away from you because it was just too much, too much pressure, too much of an expectation to perform to what other people's standards were. And though I desired to serve you, I just didn't want all the stuff that came along with it. I don't know who I'm talking to right now. But the Holy Spirit has led me to this place and to reassure you his love for you is reckless as well. I don't know what disappointments you came with this morning. I don't know what drew you this morning. Of all the places you could go, of all the different stops you could have made on this way, I don't believe it's by coincidence that the word that the Lord delivered on this morning was to reassure you his love for you has not changed. 
kind of weird personal testimony. I was a part of a sorority and I joined in 1994 and life just took its turn and you know I was in ministry and having children and raising my family and I just didn't have time anymore. And so I wasn't active and I wasn't a part of this organization for a long time. And the Lord allowed me to see the beginning of this year when I came back. There was no one there that asked me. It was all this anticipation that was built up in my mind that people were going to be like, where have you been all this time? No one asked me that. Instead, I was just welcomed with open arms. And I was restored to the place that God had for me. Because God had a work for me. And it wasn't time for me to explain where I was and what took me so long and what, where, I did, where I was at during that time. It was time for me to walk in my purpose. I want to invite you this morning before I pray for you. That's you this morning. If you feel you kind of didn't feel like giving all the explanations and the excuses and why I was here and why I didn't do this, but at this moment, you know, I need to get back in position. I need to get back to where God has for me to be. And he loves me. And he will accept me. And there's no judgment and there's no condemnation. I need you to just raise your hand and I want to pray with you right now. Hallelujah. I see your hand. You can put it down. Hallelujah. Are there any other hands? All right. Can we all bow our heads and pray? Father, I thank you right now for your reckless love. I thank you for how much you care for us. And I thank you for how at this moment you're solidifying. You're putting a ring on our finger. I thank you for those hands that were raised. I thank you that at this moment, oh God, that you are restoring to right position, that you're clothing them with your robe, that you're placing your sandals on their feet, and that you're letting them know you are loved, you are called, you are chosen, and that there's a place and a plan that I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, to bring you to an expected end. I thank you right now, oh God, that you are a good father. And I thank you, Father, that because of that, you allow us to return to you. And so God, at this moment, I thank you for every person under the sound of my voice. And I pray that anyone who is not in right standing with you will come back and become one with you again. I thank you for every person who's not yet a believer. And I thank you, Lord, that you've allowed them to know that there's a place for them as well in your kingdom. God, I ask right now for each and every one of us who are already fully committed that we would continue to share your reckless love with others. That they would grow in you and know you and become everything that you called them to be. I ask all these things in your holy and precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, put your hands together for the Lord.